You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List online. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. The interview subject I have coming up for you is John Karabi. John was, of course, a member of Motley Crue for an album and an EP. He was also in The Scream, Union, and he's currently in The Dead Daisies. On the other band he was in was ESP, the Eric Singer Project, the fellow that is currently wearing the Catman makeup in Kiss. The reason for the conversation is to promote John's upcoming Australian tour. I'll read out the four dates. Thursday, March 28th, he's playing in Sydney. Friday, March 29th, he's playing in Melbourne. Saturday, March 30th, he's playing in Brisbane. I will try to get along to that one there as he is playing upstairs at Crowbar. I think it's upstairs anyway. It's called Crowbar Black, so it must be the upstairs area. And on Sunday, March 31st, Adelaide at Enigma Bar. John's a really cool guy. Uh, to say the least, what I was able to do here, about 20 minutes into the discussion, um, we had to end because he had to jet off to the rest of his interviews. But then he very kindly offered to extend the invitation for the conversation to continue. So I took him up on it. So you'll hear a bit of a break and then we'll cut back in. And um, So that's why it sounds a bit disjointed after the 20-minute mark, but there's a whole heap of really good, great and interesting content there for you to wrap your ears around. Hope you enjoy this one because I certainly enjoyed having a conversation with the legendary John Karabi. Here we go. Just calling for a chat. How are you going? I'm all right. How are you doing, buddy? Mate, I'm plugging away. It's a very bright, I wouldn't say balmy, that'll come a bit later on, but very bright morning over here on Thursday and there's not a cloud in the sky, which I believe will change to severe thunderstorms in the afternoon, which is not really unusual for my part of the world here in Queensland. So right now, this is your uh, autumn. Yeah. yeah. You wouldn't know it, though. It's yeah. supposed to be autumn, but it was like 38 degrees yesterday, I think, or the day before. Uh, 38 degrees Celsius, which is probably about 100 and, 115, I think it is, Celsius in Fahrenheit. Um, no, let me see. Let me see. 38. No, it's probably about 90, 90 degrees, 90. Yeah. Uh, so, 90, yeah. you know what? F you. I'm sitting in rainy, cold <laughs> I, I, I have no sympathy for you, my friend. I'm sorry. This interview is over. <laughs> You're done. You've done your dash. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've done my dash. Don't rub it in. You're sitting in sun. I'm sitting in a mud-soaked, and balmy, cold, rainy day in uh, upstate Pennsylvania. Oh, I'm on tour right now, so yeah. uh, I've got a day off, and I'm just kind of chilling. But I was just sitting there going, fuck. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna pull the weather card, are you? Pull the weather card, yeah. Well, actually, it's really interesting because I've I've done almost four hundred of these interviews at this point, so I've spoken to a lot of the um, the metal guys and the the black metal guys in Norway and Scandinavia, and sometimes we do face, uh, not FaceTime, but we do Skype interviews where we're actually on video, and they actually show me outside their window, and there's forget about inches of snow, feet of snow outside of their house. And yeah. we, we barely have snow here in Australia, as I'm sure, as you know. We do have a little bit of it, but it's it's not it's enough to support a small industry, but nothing like what those guys have got up there. So, uh, yeah, mate, it's the day and age of uh, global uh, communications and instant communications uh, mean telepresent communication. That's the word I was reaching for. Means that you uh, get to talk to people in real time in um, very unique and different locations. Yeah, I was, you know, and, it, and it's funny with the touring thing. Um, I just did 26 shows in 30 days uh, acoustically Jeez. all through Europe. And I started, I started in Norway. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it, it is, it is weird, man. It's a beautiful country. Like I, you know, I mean, it looks like a postcard with snow on the trees and, mm. but fuck do they get hammered yeah. it's like you know it's higher than like i was literally driving at one point in a car and you couldn't see past the sides of the road the, the snow was just packed Jeez. it was like you were driving through a a, a, a maze it was like higher than the car. Yeah, so it was it was pretty crazy. Yeah, it's funny how human civilization human civilization has evolved in those parts of the world because uh, look in Australia, as I say, we're just not used to cold weather. We don't get it, so a lot of us just can't imagine that that constant cycle of change where you get it's what did they say? What is, I was watching a documentary on Canada, for example, but up in the Northwest Territories where they get ten months of absolutely. Uh, 
devastatingly freezing cold weather and the other two months is just completely mm. shitty. <laughs> you know what I mean? But people still live there and forge a living and have families yeah. and stuff. It's incredible. We're, we've, uh, well, and, and it's funny, after my trips to Norway and being there, and then I watch a TV series in America, there's a TV series called Vikings. Yes, no. Yeah. And you see these dudes walking around and they're they're like, you know, a pair of leather, like deerskin pants mm. and then a shirt. And they're on a boat and, you know, not a very big boat, but they're going from Norway. They're crossing the North Atlantic Sea to go to England and conquer England. And I'm like, hey, are you fucking kidding me? I've been there. It's colder than shit. And all mm -hmm. that dude has is like, you know, like a bearskin wrap. And now they're in a they're in a boat that's not much bigger than a rowboat. Yeah. And I'm like. Man, you know, the Vikings were a whole other level of manly. You oh, know what I mean? bullshit, wasn't it? You know, yeah, I know. There's something to be said for back in the day because um, they, I, I suppose in one respect, what other choice did they have except for to forge forward and, you know, these homogenous societies, they, uh, they, they're almost a reaction to their environment. So a harsh environment produces really hard people like the Vikings. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, yeah, that, that Viking series and The Last Kingdom. Did you ever see that one there? That was similar to the Viking series. I I, I just saw it on Netflix, and I got to I gotta check it out. Yeah, check it out. That's a good one. If you're looking, I mean, I know you're on tour a lot and the like, so you've got uh, a lot of time in airports as a as a, uh, a, a professional traveler. <laughs> That's the life of yeah. the, uh, the modern musician, really, isn't it? You spend so much time in airports and in hotels and all the rest of it. You, you've got to have things to, to keep you entertained, but at the same time are slightly informative and give you that view of the, of the world rather than, I don't know, I'm trying to pick a show that I've watched recently, but I don't watch a lot of shit. I watch a lot of sport, actually. Do you, do you watch a lot of sport when you're on the road? Do you get that opportunity? Well, American, you know, then we have our American football. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a rain man about that kind of shit. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So I, I watch that, but I don't, I, you know, for it's, it, it, it's funny. Um, uh, like now, uh, we call it soccer. Soccer is now becoming, it's starting to become incredibly popular in America. Mm. And a lot of cities now are beginning to, I know I live in Nashville and okay. Nashville is now building a stadium for a professional soccer team. So, um, <clears throat> you know, it's starting to pick up, but like rugby and like, you know, uh, last time I was there with the daisies, uh, mm. we played in Perth and I think the, um, I was there, was, I guess it was like your, uh, was it the Western I guess force? It would be or? Like your super, super bowl for, for rugby. Oh yeah. And it was yeah. like, I believe Perth was playing maybe Melbourne or whatever. This was yep. a few years back when we played with Kiss and a, a team called the Eagles in Perth. Oh, that's the, the Australian playing. football. Yeah, the Australian rules football. Yeah, they, they're rabid over there about the Aussie rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely rabid. Yeah, they're like, like European and, soccer fans. Yeah, and so I, you know, but I, I just, you know, it's weird. I go, okay. I don't understand the rules of rugby, but mm. now we have a kid on the team that I support here in America. The Philadelphia Eagles uh, signed a kid from the Rabbitohs. Yeah, I heard about Sydney. that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, big the big unit, the really huge looking yeah, fella. I mean, they're all like big. He's six, but... eight, and he's like maybe 19 years old or 20 years old. He's a young kid. Hmm. But I was like, holy shit, this kid's like six foot eight. And he's, uh, I guess, apparently they're trying to teach him to be like one of the front four or five guys that blocks our quarterback. Okay. Uh, and, and, and they're, but they're raving about him. Uh, they're, they're like, the kid is just, he's six foot eight and he's like 350 pounds or 360 pounds and he runs like a deer. Oh yeah, it's yeah. he's just a freak. So uh, you know, it's it, it's it's. I'm starting, you know, to get a little more uh, worldly. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm hearing you. Yeah, we we there's a few Australians playing in the the NFL at the moment, 
I think we had yeah. uh, a fellow called Jared Hayne who played, who actually in one, in about an eight, nine month period or so, went from playing rugby league to playing um, for the San Francisco 49ers. He was actually in the team. Yeah. I don't know what, what he was playing. I don't know the game well enough. But he yeah, was the, the, I think he was the running back. And he was, he was again, he was another one. He was uh, brutal. But the, the Philadelphia Eagles have a guy that was from the Rabbitohs. And then we have another kid, I believe his name is Cameron uh, Johnston or Johnson or something like that. He was in a soccer league from uh, Australia, and he's one of our kickers. Okay, right. Yeah, that kid kid is like, they're just like, this this kid kicks the football like 80 yards. And it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, Severio Rocker. He's really special. Remember Sav Rocker? Who did he play for? Was it the Pats? Sav Rocker went over there about 10 years ago or so and, and did quite yes. well doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember who he played for, but I remember watching his highlights reel. It wasn't bad. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, man, like the money that you can earn over there dwarfs what you can earn in the season over here. Like it's 20 times the amount in a lot of instances. Um, yeah, I know our our, uh, our tour manager, um, our tour manager, Tommy, um, he was our sound guy with the daisies. And... Uh, um, Tommy Dimitrov, he, he uh, uh, his son is actually in a league now, a soccer league in America, and he's playing for the, I think they're called the Seattle Sonics or whatever. It's a soccer team. Yeah. And but he said the same thing. He goes, the money that America pays their athletes is way better than the money that they'll make, unless you're like one of those, you know, superstar guys. Um, mm. you know, you don't, you just don't make very good money. No, no, that's right. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of talk about that with the, um, there's potentially going to be a global rugby championship because in the United States, you guys have started to pick up on sevens rugby a lot, which is going to influence the 15 aside game, which is the bigger version of the game. And, um, there's very strong talk that in the next two or three years that a professional competition will start and it'll include the USA. That's going to have a massive effect on the Southern Hemisphere sides, actually, because uh, they just don't have the money, mate, to compete with the money that will that will be available in North America and is currently available in Europe. And players have got to come from somewhere, and countries like Australia, New Zealand and South Africa are where the players do come from. Um Okay. So, so yeah, it's man, it, it's it's broad, it's all about broadcast rights. You know all this stuff. You know it's uh, where there's more eyes that that watch screens tends to be where the money goes. Uh, actually, in every exactly. instance, really, that's just how it works. Certainly with sports broadcasting. You know. Yeah. Mate, we'd we'd better uh, we'd better talk about this tour of yours. Um, yeah, because uh, t- I, I'm <laughs> I'm just checking now. Uh, I was looking at the schedule that Andrew. Uh, uh, or John sent me Howard, yep. and um, yeah, I got another. I got another interview in like eight minutes. Eight minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we'll fit this in. Well, what I'll do is, mate, I've got a podcast series, and ironically, most of the people listen to it in your part of the world there in the United States. Um, okay. So this conversation, man, is fantastic because it gets gives. I think it gives people an opportunity to sort of see behind the musician, if you don't mind me saying. So if you're cool, yeah, then, no worries. Or release the whole thing, but uh, man, let's let's talk about this tour because look, I'm I'm in my forties, so of course I remember when the self-titled Motley Crue album came out, and I liked it then, and I still like it now. I loved its harder edge compared to some of the more glammy stuff that Crew was known for through the 80s, because being in my early 40s, of course, grunge and death metal and all the rest of it, I was into all of that stuff at the time as well, so this Motley album really fit in right. with, you know, this Motley album really fit in with all of that, and your persona as well, I think was far more suited for the era than um, what Vincent's was, but... You know, you've, right. got, you've got that album there and you've got the Quaternary EP. So there's a cohort of fans that revere the album. And and the other thing that I've noticed too is they're typically not crew fans. They're either fans of yours or they're fans of music in general. But that With all due respect, they tend to scoff at crew because they see it as a bit of a, I don't know, what can you say? Um, as a serious rock and roll band, but they like the seriousness of the work that you brought to the crew. So... Mate, did you think that 25 years later you'd be in a position where the people were, were asking for you to tour and clamoring for a performance of the album? Yeah, you know, and it, and, and, and it's funny because I kind of stopped doing the shows um, 
like just the you know because when I come over there, I'm basically doing the the Motley record in its entirety as it appeared on the record. So like even the order of the songs on the record, that's that's our set list. Mm. And um, you know it was it was really cool. I started doing them on the 20th anniversary. And, you know, we, we did a good run, you know, and, and, then, but it started to get crazy. Like, uh, you know, I would do the shows, they were advertised as such live 94 and people would come up to me and go, man, that was awesome. But I'm a little bummed out. You didn't play any scream or any union or any dead Daisy. And I'm like, okay. So I need to rethink this. And it was funny because I, I, I initially, I tried to talk to my agent when he told me about it. I said, well, are, are, are they sure they want, you know, just the Motley thing, like four shows of just that? And, hmm. Cause I can still do a little bit of Motley, but I go, I could get, I could actually, it would be better suited if I just did a little bit of scream, little union, little Motley, maybe a dead Daisy song or two and call it a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but it, it, it's funny. Like I was just, it, oddly enough, I was just talking to Mick Mars about 20 mm-hmm. minutes ago mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> we were laughing. I said, you know, it's really funny. I said, when these records and I, 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 I for some reason apparently have this knack of doing these records and I put them out um, like the scream the Motley record and even the union stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's weird when it comes out, nobody really pays it much mind. Yeah. And then it's weird. Like 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, everybody's like talking about it. Like it's like this must have, you know, like it's like the lost, you know, the lost sea scrolls or something. You yeah, know what I mean? It's, it's a hidden classic. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's a like a classic record, and I appreciate it. You know what I mean. But I'm just like, you know, Mick Mars just started laughing. He goes, "Yeah, I tell everybody when they listen to the record, and they go, man, this is really good.'" He goes, "What took you so goddamn long? <laughs> <laughs> Twenty five years later, what took you so goddamn long?" Yeah. But you know what? I'm just I'm just happy to be here. I'm breathing. I'm still playing music, and I'm excited to bring my son. Is my drummer? Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, I'm just excited to bring him to Australia. He's never been there before. I just want the guys in my band to have a great time. Mm. And, uh, you know, let's just go down and have some fun. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And and I'm so glad that you recognize that fans of yours are really in tune with all of the projects that you've been a part of. You know, so there's, there's Scream, to your point, ESP, Union. You're even in Rat for a period of time. I think you toured here in 2007 with Rat. And then there's broads. Of- yeah, but I never really, I never really contributed. I, I contributed a couple songs on the very last record they did when they were on Roadrunner. Uh, I guess it was called Infest- Infestation. Okay. Yeah. Um, I contributed to that record, but I never really contributed to Rat as far as any recordings go. I was just, mm. I was kind of taking a little bit of a mental break. It was a it was a way for me to just go out and do what I love to do, play music and tour, but not have to worry about how many tickets were sold, how many records were sold, how many T-shirts were sold. I just showed up. I did my job. I did what they asked me to do. And it was it was kind of a bit of a mental uh I was on vacation for like seven years. Yeah, you know I understand. I mean? Yeah, I absolutely understand where you're coming from. Yeah, and it's, but that's an important point. You still actually contributed creatively to Rat. So everything that you've you've been a part of, you've you, you're obviously very creatively driven. Okay, so I've seen your songwriting credits r- across plenty of stuff, plenty of stuff, even Generation Swine. You've got songwriting yeah. credits on Generation Swine, and I don't think a lot of people will realise that. And for people listening, Generation Swine is a Motley Crue record that they, that Motley Crue obviously released in '97 after John's departure and Vince came back in. But the songwriting there, I can hear that it's you actually, because it's not that Motley Crue style songwriting with Vince. It's got your fingerprints all over it. Yeah, and, and it was it was very experimental record. You know that was. 
you know, much to my, uh, you know, to be quite honest with you, I was trying to just get them to be themselves, you know, but they were hell bent on, you know, that was the record that I did with them was really, I mean, it went platinum, but it was like probably the worst selling record that they had ever had. Mm. Um, you know, and everybody, you know, you kind of get into a panic mode. Again, I was just talking to Mick about this. You get into a panic mode and you think you have to reinvent yourself. Yes. And yes. I'm like, it's not about reinventing yourself. It's just about being persistent and staying the course. And, mm. you know, like, it, you know, it's that old adage, you know, like, oh, these jeans are out of style. But if I hold on to them for 10 years, they'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And I it's do. the same thing. Just keep doing what you do. Yep. Stay true to yourself and just keep plowing forward, man, you know, and, and the, the rest of everything else will catch up to you. Mm, indeed, yeah, it does. Mate, I, I feel like we've got heaps of things to talk about, but God, the nature of these phone grinds, mate, as I call them, mate, is you've got the other one coming through shortly. So, mate, thanks heaps for thinking of us and coming down, hey? And, and the other thing too, I've always wanted to have a chat to you, so it's a bit of a thrill for me to be able to do this because I, I, one of my favourite albums is the ESP stuff and Union. Well, if, honestly, Andrew, if you need more, um, I'll be done in, uh, let me see, it's 5, 520. I'll be done in like an hour and 20 minutes. If you want to call me back and ask me some more stuff, that, that'd be fine. Okay. I've, I've only got one, you, one, two, three, four, five more interviews. But if you've got another 20 minutes, the other one's coming in now. Yep. But if you want, call me back in like an hour and an hour and a half and we'll finish up. You can ask me some more stuff. Okay, mate, I'll do that. That'd be wonderful. Thank you so much, eh? All Thank right, you. buddy. Rowan's calling now. I got I to gotta go. Okay, mate. No worries. Talk to you. All right. Bye. See you. Bye. See ya. I'm all right. So here's the deal, buddy. I don't know if John called you. Uh, yeah, he, he just but takes the last him. interview. Yeah, the last interview is gonna is running a little bit late, and I don't know when they're gonna call. Uh, right. Um, so I can talk to you until they call. You okay. know what I mean? Yeah, no worries whatsoever, mate. I'm trying to think where we're at. I've just dropped the kids off actually at school. So. Um... God, where were we at? Were we talking about Union or ESP? I think it was one of the two. Or maybe we dived into a little bit of Rat, actually, and your contribution there and the tour that you did in 2007 in Australia and how you were saying it was a break for you. That was an opportunity for you to take a bit of a back seat and still perform. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's weird. Like when you're in a band like The Scream or Motley or Union, when you're kind of part of the ship and you're so worried about how many tickets were sold and how many records were sold and where did we chart and, mm. you know, all this other stuff. So when the opportunity came up for me to, basically I was replacing, uh, you know, Robin Crosby. Okay. Um, yep. You know, Warren and Bobby, we all knew each other, you know, and they just offered me a job to sing backing vocals and play some guitar. Mm. And, you know, not to sound crass, but... I just went on tour. I play. I was playing music. I was doing something that I feel I'm good at, and I was just kind of getting paid on Friday. Yes, okay. I didn't have to worry about any of the other things that are involved in the business. You know what I mean? It was. It was pretty. It was pretty. It was. It was definitely a mind relief. A bit. A bit. Well, those guys, they still haven't got their shit together, if you don't mind me saying. Um, you know, there's Bobby Blotz's version of rap, which I think that they went, he and Juan went to court together, and I think Juan's well, I now got the name. I don't even think he's doing that anymore. And, you know, I, I, quite honestly, I love all those guys. They're all great dudes, mm. and they mean well, but I've, I, I truly have never seen a more dysfunctional, I mean, even Motley Crue, who like it's common knowledge <laughs> yeah. don't like each other but they still manage uh, to figure out a way mm. like okay we've got fans they want to see the four of us on stage how do we make this work yes. and they've figured it out and that's the thing like a lot of people look at me and they go you're an idiot you know whatever but like the night that they got offered that deal with Roadrunner, I was in the band. I was the guitar player. I mm. played at the House of Blues in L.A. when the guy showed up and offered us the deal. Mm. And I literally called them the next day and I said, I quit. And they're like, well, we just got a record deal. Why are you quitting? And I go, because you guys can't get through a rehearsal without wanting to kill each other. I'm not going to go stay in South Carolina for three months and write and record a record. You guys can't get through a rehearsal. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, you know, I left and then as it turned out, they, you know, the egos and the infighting, it, it just all imploded anyway. Hmm. Yeah. And look what so you So it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. And, and, and that comment that you made about, yeah, Motley, I mean, it's Motley Crue are famously dysfunctional, famously dysfunctional for Rat to be more dysfunctional than them, than them just from an outsider's perspective, looking at it, mate, things just must be diabolical when you get into a rehearsal room or close quarters like a tour bus. So to your point, mate, how the hell could you move to, move to the Carolinas and record an album with them if they couldn't, if yeah, they can't get was, through a meal together? Was, it was cr- yeah, it was crazy. Like it, when I first joined the band, they would say, okay, we're going to start rehearsing at noon. And I'm not bull- I'm not bullshitting. Like we would literally, me at the time, it was me, Robbie Crane, Jizzy Pearl, hmm. and then Bobby and Warren. And me, Robbie, and Jizzy would show up at noon, and then Bobby and Warren would just sit there and bicker. Yeah. Because Warren would say Bobby's playing the songs too fast. Bobby would say you're playing them too slow, and it would literally be a two-hour, you know, oh, argument. Yeah, on on, you know, if Bobby be like, dude, I know what I'm doing. I've been playing these songs for 25 years, and Warren's like, yeah, and you've been playing them wrong for 25 years, and it was just oh, like, God. you know, there's yeah. absolutely no respect for each other in that band, and so there was, it, it got to the point where we would, we would literally leave, we would literally leave to go get a sandwich or something. Like, they'd start arguing, and we would leave, go get a sandwich, and come back. They'd still be arguing and had no idea we left the room. Hmm. So I'm just like, (laughs) you know, and and honestly, you know, I've been doing this long enough to know that I love playing music. I love doing what I do for a living. But I don't want to be around something or I don't want to be involved in something that doesn't allow this to be fun or enjoyable. Mm. You know, it's not always going to be fun, but it needs to be enjoyable. Yeah. And I just said, you know what? I'm out, man. Like I, I, I see this, I know where this is going. And as it turned out, you know, Carlos Cavazza replaced me. Mm-hmm. And it was hilarious because Carlos and Robbie Crane would be calling me on a somewhat daily basis going, dude, you're like a fortune teller. Like this, the, the whole writing process and recording process was, it, it was like pulling teeth. It, yeah, it, it yeah. was basically, you know, and then they'd get songs recorded and they would, you know, and then they would just sit there and think over who wrote what part oh, and God. who was yeah. lion's share of the publishing. And just like every band that I've ever been in, uh, you know, obviously now I'm in solo, I'm a solo artist. Yep. But when I was in the screen, it didn't matter. Like, you know, I can honestly sit here and say there was 12 songs on that record. I guarantee you I wrote 10. I wrote the majority of the other 10 songs. But I didn't care. I just wanted things to be even and quiet, so I go. You know what? Let's split everything equally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a team. You're a team player, and mate. You've always same, given me that vibe. Same with the Motley record. Didn't matter who wrote what or who wrote more or whatever. That record sounds the way it sounds. <laughs> Excuse me, I just sneezed. Um, no worries. <laughs> that record sounds the way it sounds because of the way Tommy played on that record because of the way Mick played on that record because of the way Nikki played on that record and because of the way I played on that record. And you know what? At the end of the day, if everybody shows up and does their job and, and you know what I mean? Does, Mm. you know, does their thing, it's going to translate to record sales. So why not split everything equally? Mm. Yeah, indeed, indeed. You, men- you mentioned someone there, and I've always wanted to ask somebody close to him about this. It's not about his personality or anything, but Nicky, as the bass player, it's probably the ironic thing about Nicky is that as a bass player, the least amount of copy out there and the least amount of information out there about him is about his bloody bass playing. 
But for somebody who was in the studio with him, what was he like as a bassist? In other words, could he could he do things in a couple of takes? Was he one of those types of bass players? Because his bass line, I'm a bassist, you see, so I've played along to some crew cups, and they're fairly straightforward. But they tend to be yeah. they tend to be the backbone of the rhythm, of course, as a lot of bass is. So it's like Pete Way from UFO, very similar to him. I always found his bass lines. So was he was he? Uh, Listen, he, he you know, Nicky knows his limitations. That, that I'll just put it that way. Nicky knows what he's really good at, and he knows what is a little out on the limb yeah. for him. And he sticks to what he does well. And Nicky's Nikki's strongest suit is, you know, like he's been the brains and the songwriter. He was the songwriter for the longest time hmm. for that band. Um, you know, so the, the thing I will say about Nicky is when he would go into the studio, he'd be listening to the song. Now, he's not the type of person where you could go, hey, let's just jam. Yeah. And he's not going to come up with things that are brilliant uh, in a jamming situation. But what Nikki would do is we were jamming as we were writing these songs. And as we were jamming, he was thinking about the parts. What would what would accent that beat that Tommy's doing or that vocal that John's doing or that guitar part that mixed, like he was always thinking of it as a songwriter. Mm -hmm. So while we were jamming, he was thinking about what he was going to do. Then he would take his bass, he'd go home and we'd always record everything. And then he would go home and he would find what he thought was the best part for that song. Yes, okay. And he, and he did it. And he went into the studio and he played it. Um, now, Bob Rock has a way of challenging everybody and making you want to do better. So there was some things where Nicky went in and he was set, and then there was other things where Bob said, let's expand on this a little more. And, you know, but Nicky's, Nicky's the type of guy, like, he's not going to sit down and play like Paul McCartney or, hmm. or John Paul Jones right out of the gate. But if you give him some time to think about what he wants to do, he will come up with a part that works for the song. And, yeah. it's, and, and at the end of the day, that's all you want. You want a part that's going to work for the song, and that's what's going to make it brilliant. Hmm. Well, I suppose... You know, know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah, absolutely. I've spent enough time in the studio to understand, not heaps of time, nowhere near as much as yourself. But, um, yeah, I, being a bassist is... is I've got to say, as a musician, it is never easy when you're in that collective space because you're often putting your part down last, and you've got to make you've got to make a creative baseline that stands on its own two feet. A bit like what Bob Daisley used to do, although he was a songwriter, of course, it's mm -hmm. a bit different. But but the thing about Bob Daisley's baselines, and when I was certainly playing in rock bands, I used to model my playing on a cross between him and Doug Wimbish from Living Colour because I like a lot of the slap bass as well. But I'd often say. Right. If, if I was given a part where there was some wide open space, I thought, well, what could I add in here and how would Bob approach it or how would, um, you know, ha, ha, what would I do here, this sort of thing. But, yeah, it always takes time as a bassist. It's, um, you're never really leading things. You're always supporting things. So I understand what you said there is, is how I imagine you it. Know, the the greatest thing as a bass player, I, I mean, I, I, I don't play bass per se. I can, but I, I read this story... Uh, it, it was actually, and he's one of my favorite bass players anyway. I, I mean, I, I have I have a few. Hmm. Um, but probably one of my favorite bass players, hands down, is probably Paul McCartney. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because Paul, according to all things that I've read, so they would go in and they would track the guitars and the drums and the piano and they would do the vocals and they would do all the harmony vocals, everything. And the last thing to go on was Paul's bass. Mm. And he would, he would go back after everything was done and he would go back and he would create these bass lines that actually filled up the gaps. Mm. And it's, it's crazy to me. Like, uh, like to me, one of the greatest bass lines I've ever heard is what he plays on Penny Lane. Um, okay. You know, yeah. that, do, 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 it's like a walk. Do, yeah. Do, do. yeah, it's, but it's so fucking brilliant. Um, and, and it doesn't walk, it, it's walking, but it doesn't step on anything. 
Mm. It's so genius. Uh, you know, so, it, you know, to me, like McCartney's just hands down. I've, I, like I said, I've got a, I've got a few uh, bass players that I just think are sick, insane. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I love Paul McCartney. Uh, I love John Paul Jones, I think, mm. is just, he was like, he was like the hidden weapon in, in Oh, absolutely. Zeppelin. People Zeppelin don't understand that. Zeppelin without him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm so glad um, you say that. Yeah. It, I loved him. Another one that gets, you know, from another band that gets absolutely no credit at all, uh, like Grand Funk Railroad, still to this day, mm. it's a crime that they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They never will be mm-hmm. after selling, you know, now, you know, Motley Crue will probably get in uh, after selling 40 million records. But I think globally, uh, I think Grand Funk Railroad sold 50 or 60 million copies Jeez. of the records, maybe yeah. more. Um, and like it, they're they're just so underrated and just so swept under the rug. But that bass player, Mel Sacher, in in that band was like if you go back and listen to some of their live records when they were still just a three-piece band way in the beginning and they were they were around before zeppelin mm, uh they were, you know what they I mean? were yeah these are butler's another one these are butler's another another brilliant bass player he had yeah. a tone you know and then i'm a huge fan i'm a huge huge fan of chris squire I thought Chris Squire, oh, yeah. like tone-wise, yeah. just everything was, he was a genius. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I'm so glad you're mentioning all these wonderful bases for people to uh, wrap their ears around. Yes, it's got yes, the band have got so many wonderful songs outside of the radio hits, a lot of the 70s stuff. And um, Jetty Lee's another one who, oh, he's just so yeah. smart. I just listen to everything he does, and I think, oh, my God. He's just in another dimension but somewhere. But you know what, for me, like, you know, and then there's the obvious. There's the Stanley Clarks, and there's the Jaco Pistorius, and, yeah. you know, uh, like, there's those guys. But, like, for rock, mainstream rock, like, to me, Getty Lee is amazing. I love Getty Lee's playing. But Chris Squire really kind of said, hey, this is prog rock. This is, <laughs> we're going to take this. I, I've got this prog rock thing down. Oh, and I'm going to back it up with an image, and I'm going to back it up with a tone. Mm. I saw them when I was a kid, and I swear to God, like he he did that he, he did that bass that bass line in a uh, 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 I mean there were so many that yeah. like, I can't even remember, but like when he went into that keyboard bass section of Roundabout. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I thought my chest was going to cave in. That was probably the greatest bass tone I think I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> it was like, what did he holy use? Shit, this was, guy. was he was he using an Olympic bass? I don't know what he was using. He was uh, like it just I I mean what he had on stage was just he had a Rickenbacker bass, hmm. and he was uh, and it was like I, I all I saw was like three old classic SVT cabinets. Now I don't know if he was running it through any effects. Or whatever, but oh my God, the thickest, biggest, cleanest, pure bass sound I, I think I've ever heard. I was like, holy shit, this guy's like unbelievable. Yeah, massive loss. And he was jumping, he's doing all yeah. this. He, it was just everything, man. It was cool. Yeah. You know, he was cooler than shit. Yeah, just you mentioned somebody a little, or you mentioned a band. Okay, so you talked about Grand Funk, but of course, Grand Funk these days do contain one of your former bandmates, and that's Bruce Kulick. Yes. So I had a chat to Bruce about two years ago or so, a bit like mm-hmm. very similar to you, mate. The thing that I really like about talking to you guys that have been there and done, you know, you seasoned professionals, is you're very congenial, you're very easy to talk to. So, I mean, the the ESP uh, album. And what you guys were doing together, do you think that that gets, um, well, Union, uh, sorry, it's Union, isn't it? So Union, do you think you guys get enough credit for doing that stuff? Because you must be aware that musicians in particular, people like me, lifelong musicians, been playing an instrument for, say, 25 years, almost 30 years at this point. We really love that stuff. You know, so does that does well, still and, resonate and, for and you? And you know what's funny? Again, I think I mentioned it to you earlier. Like, I'm, I have this incredible knack of doing these records and 
you know, now the scream was starting to, to pick up and build uh, quite a bit of positive feedback. The Motley record, we all know what, what happened there. Like, I mean, that thing, it, it, even though it went platinum, hmm. it was still the worst selling record that Motley had. The tours were horrible. It's become like this weird thing. Like, I, I, I you know, in, in hindsight, if Tommy, Nikki, and Mick were to call me now and we were to go out and do that record live, hmm. it would probably be a completely different story now. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the weirdest thing. And it's the same with Union. Union, we were, we were doing really well in Scandinavia and some spots in Europe. But nobody gave a shit about that band. Hmm. Then, now, they've boxed up the two studio albums, and it's hilarious because I've had offers, I've had offers for the band to do the Monsters of Rock cruise, um, to do some touring, and I think now, if that band went out and didn't write another note of music, if we just went out and played the songs that we wrote 20 years ago it would be it would be like it would be stupid hmm. so I you know it's it's funny I go man I'd really I'd really like to do a record that actually sells well while I'm alive <laughs> you know what I mean so that I could I actually, I could <laughs> actually maybe go out and buy myself some kind of cool sports car and enjoy the fruits of my labor but it's, it's just weird man it's just it's some weird thing where it's like this Every record that I've ever done is now like some weird cult classic record that everybody's like, oh man, it's it's so great. Equally, I, I still do acoustic shows and there's equally as many Union fans as there are Motley fans, as there are Scream fans mm. at my shows. Mm. It's the weirdest thing. I reckon I reckon yourself and Richie Kotzen are the most credible musicians Uh insofar as everything you guys have ever done has been excellent really high quality stuff and stuff that to your point and fans get this because this is the wonderful thing about the internet so for all of the negative bullshit that the internet gives us through social media and trolling and all of that sort of stuff it it's a, it's an archive of all this wonderful music for anybody to access not just anybody with funds but for anybody to access so right. consequently people are able to dive back into these albums from the late 80s or the 90s and review them with fresh with fresh ears. The, the same goes for. Here's a good question for you, okay? Vito Brada from White Line, I think, is one of the greatest guitarists that I've, I've certainly heard on on an album. Um, did you were you ever in a position where there was a possibility you guys could have worked together? I've never read anything about it. I'm just talking to you now, so I'm just bringing it up because I think it would be a partnership for the ages. That one there, yourself and Vito. No, I mean, I, I've met him, but it was brief. It was very brief. Um, mm. But we've never actually become, like, friends or whatever. And and to be quite honest with you, I think I told you this earlier, like, there was a lot of stuff. And you have to forgive me if I didn't tell you this earlier. I've just, no. I just did, like, eight interviews. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't remember who yeah. I said what to. Yeah. But, oh, good. Um, you know, it, it, and I mean this in no disrespect. I wasn't a big fan of a lot of the uh, 80s bands. Hmm. Um, like, a lot of it, um, it just kind of went, eh, you know, it went over my head. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, if you listen, even still to this day, if you looked at my... Um, all the music on my phone or my iPod... Um, 99% of it is all from, I mean, to me, the greatest, the greatest era of music, and this is only my opinion, is from when the Beatles, I guess, did, I don't know which came first, Rubber Soul or Revolver, but uh, whatever Rubber, rubber Soul did, records yeah. Came. Rubber Soul came first. Okay, yeah. so from Rubber Soul, from Rubber Soul, I, which I believe was 65 or 66. Yep. So let's say 1965. 
So from 1965 till 1980 was probably the greatest 15 years of music that ever. Mm. Like from a, from a purely, maybe not record sales wise. I mean, obviously, if you look at the 80s and the I mean, there was probably more records sold in the 80s than ever before. Yep. But c from a creative point of view, I was more into, oh, shit, George Harrison discovered a sitar, and now they're using sitars on their music, and they're using tablas, and, and you know, it was just like this crazy... And then, you know, it wasn't that unusual for someone to go see... Um, you know, like go see a show at the, where I grew up in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. you'd go see a show, uh, you know, one weekend you'd go see, uh, James Taylor. And then, you know, a week later you'd go see Black Sabbath mm -hmm. and then you'd go see Foghat the week after, and then you'd go see Bob Seger or yes, mm -hmm. it was so eclectic and so creative. There were so many different, you know, it was just rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. Um, Such a good point. It, yeah. It, it just kind of all fell under that umbrella. So you're like, oh, I, I love rock and roll. It wasn't as divided and, and, and categorized as it is right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Oh, I do. Yeah, it's so, it's a, it's a real issue with a lot of young people these days in terms of getting into music. Where do you start? So, of course, the the youth genres these days are deathcore and metalcore. You've probably heard of these genres, and I do interview a lot of these bands and a lot of these young young men and, and ladies. Mate, they're very sharp and they really want to play music. But man, I'm I'm a bit like you in that I come from a bit of a different era to what these younger people who are sort of between the ages of 19 and 25 are coming through and um, there's a lot of pressure I think for them to conform to genre tags and to not introduce yeah. new elements if you like because the other thing is too I think the internet trolls haven't helped that because a lot of these young people are still vulnerable they're still feeling their way through life they're not fully fledged adults yet you know they haven't had their heart broken right. enough and they haven't been ripped off yet enough and they don't have kids and you know they don't all have all of these things that tend to ground but it, you you know it it, it 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 i think i think the i think a lot of this that these kids are listening to now and and the way with their their program it's kind of uh the industry is complaining about the music their industry <clears throat> everybody's complaining there's no there's no money things aren't the way they used to be well it's all self-inflicted hmm we didn't, the artist, I didn't say, oh, hey, I'm this genre of music. I just, I just play rock and roll. Yes. I, and my, my version of music entails an acoustic guitar. It, in, it, it will entail uh, having an orchestra back me up. It will entail piano. It will entail backup singers. It will entail uh, maybe a sitar or a tabla or some weird, per, per, you know, I just write the way I write and I don't think about music in categories. I grew up in an era where it wasn't unusual to go see Bob Seger and then go see black Sabbath right after. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, 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 it was like you, when you said you liked rock and roll, that basically entailed music. You yeah. would listen to wishbone Ash, Mahavishnu orchestra. Yes. Yes. UK, definitely. Black Sabbath, Foghat, Slade, Aerosmith, Zeppelin, Grand Funk Railroad. You just like it all. Mm. And it's just, and that's, that's my background. So, and, and I think that's the, you know, it's the beauty of where I'm coming from because I don't think anybody can actually pigeonhole me and go, I think his next record is going to sound like this. No. It's not. No, you couldn't do that. It for could you, be yeah. anything at this point. Yeah, you know what I mean? And, mm. and I think that's the beauty of my thing, but the sadness of like a lot of these kids nowadays. The industry created these categories. The industry, and when I say industry, the record sellers, mm -hmm. the record companies, the radio stations, um, even to a degree, the press. Now there's magazines that are just dedicated to, you know, death metal, and then there's classic rock, and yeah. there's like, you know, not dude, it's music. Doesn't matter. 
Mm. It doesn't matter. Stop with the categories and, you know, enjoy the music. You know what? There's some days when I'm driving my El Camino <laughs> and I want to step on the gas. I'm going to listen to Ace of Spades by Motorhead. Yes. And then there's other times where I'm just kind of hanging with my wife in the RV and she wants to listen to this serious XM station called The Bridge, which is basically all stuff like Gordon Lightfoot, James Taylor, mm-hmm. Carol King, The Eagles. It's a little bit of everything, but it's a little, you know, but it's, it's everything. Bob Seger, Rod Stewart, you know, it's everything. Hmm. Yeah, and I it's just it's just crazy, you know what I mean? I, I I hate the category thing. Yeah, I don't want to fall into a category. I want to be, you know, whatever. I, th- I think you've transcended it. I think I think that's the word. I think you have. I think you've managed to do that. And so the scream is a bit harder edge. And then you've got bands. the The thing that the thing that you could never. Um, you've always been an excellent. You've always surrounded yourself, and you are an excellent musician. That's that's the key thing with you. So you know that when you listen to an album that you've been associated with, it will contain very very good musicianship. Okay, and and I think that's what people. I think if I could, if I could, frame the way people are drawn to you, I think that's what it might be. And I think the fact that you've you've had a very clean nose through your career too probably helps a lot too because I think a lot of. Well, and, and you know what? At the end of the day, I'm kind of convinced now that I'm just never going to be that guy. I'm never, you know, I used to kid around, and each each record I go, you know, they're like, well, what are your expectations? And I go, I just want to sell one more record than Michael Jackson's Thriller, and I'm just going <laughs> to retire to an island. Yeah. But I've kind of given up on that. Like, I, I just, you know, it's it, it was funny, it was a joke, but, you know, at the end of the day, like, I think every musician goes in with every record, and they go, oh, man, this is the one. This is the one that's going to put me over the top. Yeah. And now I've just kind of, it's not that I don't want to do good records. I do. But I just think I've taken all the expectations out because if you really look at the music industry now, nobody's making any money selling records no. <laughs> at all. That's right. Even even bands like Kiss and Aerosmith now are going, uh, you haven't done it. The people are asking them, you haven't done any records in like 10 years. Yeah. They're going, why would we? We're not making any money anymore. So, end of the day, I, I'm, I'm trying to find the beauty. In the, I'm trying to find the beauty in the blemish now. And mm. the beauty of it is, is, you know what? Nobody is selling any records. So, you know what that means? That means I don't have to worry about pitching a hit song to a radio station. I don't need to worry about uh, having the hit song that... Uh, you know, Kerrang! magazine or this magazine or that. Uh, like, all of those expectations now are gone. Mm. Mm. It's, so it's now, liberating. I can just be an artist and I can just do the best record I can. And and if I want to do a blues song that lasts nine minutes, you know, I can do that. Go ahead and do that. That's yeah. the beauty of there are no expectations now. So I'm trying to look at it this way, and I've just kind of convinced myself, you know what? Um, it's not about selling $10 million and having a massive bank account. Although that'd be, although that that'd be nice. Is calling. <laughs> All right, mate. I really appreciate your time, brother. Thank you. All right, buddy. Thank you. Thanks, brother. No worries. Gotcha. You have been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. That interview subject was John Karabi. Thank you so much for listening.